Spencer Balfour and the Tijuana Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. A guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio is the managing editor of Fangraphs and king of all baseball nerds, or would-be king of all baseball nerds if uh, baseball nerds were arranged uh, politically in a kingdom. Um, his name is uh, Dave Cameron. Did I say he's the managing editor of Fangraphs? I ought to have said it because that is also a fact. You, uh, if you're listening to this, you're almost definitely aware of who Dave Cameron is and uh, in what follows, Dave Cameron behaves precisely like you would imagine him to behave, which is to say uh, he, he speaks in that funny voice. He says those um, he says those funny things and he also, uh, he also analyzes the hell out of some baseball. With regard to exactly how he goes about analyzing that baseball, this is what he had to say today. It will be an amalgamation of three things. That okay. should be the name of the podcast. Yes, amalgamation uh, of three Cameron things. Cameron amalgamates three things. Mysterious, yes, but also probably true. Uh, in any case, uh, let's get to that conversation with Dave Cameron. Uh, this is Fangraphs Audio. It does feature managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. Be checking the levels now. Yes, level checking is a weekly feature. This is the part of the show where we check the levels. Yes, this is the part everyone tunes in for. Yeah, how are you? It's uh, all downhill from there. How are you, Cameron? I'm good. It's a beautiful day in the south. Oh, that's nice. That's nice. Has, yeah. it, uh, has it not been beautiful recently? It, it got warm a couple weeks ago, like in the 80s and, and uh, humid, and I, I like spring. I'm not actually a giant fan of southern summers. Uh, so I, I really enjoy the, the springtime out here, and I was annoyed that I didn't get one. So the fact that the, the temperature has retreated and the humidity has gone away makes me happy. Yeah. Uh, of course, well, so it, it maybe not exactly this time of year, but certainly at the beginning, of, the very beginning of a baseball season, uh, there are always this sort of uh, few scattered voices that declare that, this, uh, you know, when there's uh, snow in Cleveland or Minneapolis or whatever, that the baseball season begins too early and something must be done about it. Um, and then when the weather gets nice again, then you don't hear anyone talk about it. Yeah, I like the uh, the season starts too early, and then when we're playing you know, baseball, the World Series in October, uh, late October, early November, and everyone's like, oh, man, the season goes too long. It's like, well, you can have one or the other, but not both. Well, I guess you could have fewer games. But you could, right, you could have fewer games or more scheduled doubleheaders, which I think has uh, always been the suggestion of, of one Rob Nyer, who uh, really enjoys the scheduled doubleheader. Uh, I think the small problem with scheduled doubleheaders is a dramatic loss of revenue. Uh, because is, is it because you admit? Wait, is it because you're admitting the same people? Because there are different types of doubleheaders, right? There's one where you could just buy yeah, a no, ticket. No, right. You're, I mean, so basically, you're playing night games today, and so by taking a game that would otherwise be in prime time. Uh, you're lowering the TV ratings. The networks are not going to be very happy about this, especially if they hand over their entire coffers to Major League Baseball. Uh, and the day games are just lower attended than night games. Yeah, actually, what is the uh, – do, do you have any sense of the numbers associated with that? Difference in attendance and or of uh, TV crowds between between day and night games? Now you're asking for facts, Carson. No. I'm speculating wildly <laughs> and do not appreciate being called on it. Uh, no, I, I, I'm fairly sure that my my accusations are correct, but yeah. I don't actually have any data to support it. Okay, yeah. Well, that would be interesting to see the data. I mean, it's not data I'm going to look for, but I assume right. uh, I assume that someone is a bit uh, uh, maybe Maury, Maury Brown. 
Now, now, wait a minute. We we have a fantastic business of baseball writer on our staff, and you're recommending that someone people ignore Wendy Thurman. No, 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 no. Same person. Not at all. Not at all. No. What I'm saying is that maybe that's something Maury Brown has already looked because he his site has been around uh, for some time. Whereas I know I think Wendy Thurm uh, is entirely capable. Uh, I think she's entirely capable. Absolutely. What's this thing on on that note? And also. Concerning a team that you, uh, with which you have some acquaintance, is uh, I guess that the Mariners have done something uh, in terms of a new uh, cable network or something like this. Is, is this a fact? Well, not a new cable network. The, and so instead of uh, extending their licensing agreement with DirecTV, which owned their regional sports network called Root Sports Northwest, the worst named sports network in the history of the world. Uh, the Mariners decided instead of just taking a giant uh, check from them, uh, that they would buy majority ownership. We don't know exactly how much, but you know, controlling interest in the in the network itself. So now the Mariners are one of a few teams uh, who have a majority stake in their own network and can be creating revenues uh, from that TV network that don't don't have to be shared with Major League Baseball. Okay, right, and so. Um, so how many clubs is that now, approximately? Uh, again, I won't hold you to facts. Uh, but it, I think I think it's like five or six, because the Yankees actually just sold off a decent chunk of the Yes Network to okay. News Corp. I think they sold like 49% of the share. So they, it wasn't a, a majority stake, but they sold off They sold off a lot of it. I think they own less than 50% now. Uh, the Red Sox own a good chunk of uh, Masson. Uh, Nes- Nesson. Nesson, right, sorry. Uh, the Orioles and Nationals... Uh, co-own Masson, but the Orioles have a larger stake. The Nationals are the smaller rights holder in that deal. Um, and then I believe there might be one or two other teams that own their RSN. Interestingly, some other teams have gone the exact opposite direction. The Cleveland Indians actually sold their uh, network sports title Ohio to Fox Sports this offseason for, uh, I think it was $400 billion or something like that, uh, and used some of the proceeds to sign Nick Fisher, Michael Bourne, uh, Mark Reynolds, Brett Myers, at all. Right, right, right. Um, now, it seems to me, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, one of the advantages to owning, uh, for a team to own its own network, is not only the revenue that that network, uh, the cable sports network, would uh, would uh, elicit itself, but also that you can use it as a bit of a, I don't know if you use it as a tax shelter, or you can attribute uh, revenues from the team to the network and write off the losses on the team. Isn't there something that goes on here? Yeah, so essentially, uh, I mean, it is a, it's a tax shelter from, from Major League Baseball's revenue sharing, so it's more of a, a revenue shelter. Uh, but instead of, like, hiding revenues, I mean, that used to be done more commonly. It might still be done. I guess we don't know the books for sure. But more often what we hear about now is uh, the, the team that owns the network will license its games, its broadcast rights to the network for a uh, pittance of a revenue. <laughs> so instead of, you know, 100-150 million per year, which is what we're seeing teams get uh, when they sign deals with Fox or Time Warner or whichever the cable company is uh, in order to broadcast those games. They will do it for some fraction of that amount so that there's not a transference of cash from the network to the team. Uh, so therefore, the team doesn't have to share the revenue with Major League Baseball because they're not actually making that money. Um, and then the amount of revenue that the, the network makes that it doesn't pay to the team uh, doesn't have to be shared because it's a, essentially an investment. And so, um, you know, the, the team has taken on uh, some risk by owning the network, and so that those revenues are not subject, because they're not guaranteed, those revenues are not subject to be uh, shared with other teams. Now, ultimately, 
concerning this, what is the effect on the consumer or the the fan? Is, is there anything that's that really changes for the the, the home viewer? Not really. I mean, you know, I think when you see a, a team-owned RSN, they'll sometimes come up with more programming because, you know, if you have a 24-hour regional sports network, you have to put things on it. Uh, so it wouldn't be too shocking if uh, Root Sports began uh, producing more Mariner-centric programs. Uh, the only problem with that is the Mariners are terrible and no one wants to watch their games, so therefore you would have to think the interest level in uh, non-game Mariner program is going to be even, even less. And, you know, the Mariners are now in the television business. Uh, you know, there's no real advantage to putting low-rated programs on TV. So, you know, I think one of the things that they're likely to do is probably uh, try and get in with um, the Sonics if Chris Hansen is, is able to buy the Sacramento Kings and relocate them to Seattle and, and make this a multi-sport deal where they can uh, maybe have the, the Mariners and Sonics and they can, you know, do some high school and college stuff and, and kind of fill out the broadcast that way. It's not going to be a, a situation like yes where it's basically just a Yankees network. The, the root sports, even though it's going to be owned by the Mariners, is going to have to show uh, other sports, other teams, other franchises uh, from other places simply because there's not that much interest in a bad baseball team. Uh, yeah, and I would also say, in, um, no, we know, right? If it, um, we know that teams that win uh, tend to tend to have uh, greater attendance and to have better ratings. Is that is that true for the most part? Yeah. Okay, that's true. The, I don't know necessarily how this would affect it, but obviously that's going to have some effect on you know on the degree to which people are willing to watch Mariners program. Another thing is the Mariners don't really have much of a history either uh, relative to uh, you know at least older clubs like some of the ones you mentioned, like. Uh, you know, like the Yankees, um, I mean, you know, like the Red Sox, they don't have as much in the way. You know, if you're if you're the Red Sox and you're looking for programming, it's like, oh, here is a here is a documentary on Ted Williams. Um, you know, and there's there's just more of that uh, within you know, like a Red Sox or Yankees uh, history than there is the Mariners, which starts when, uh, you know, what in the 70s, 1977, yes. yeah. And most of the most of the seasons that they have played have ended badly so unless they wanted to create like mariner blooper reel uh, <laughs> you know the follies of the 80s when yeah. he was absolutely terrible yeah there's i mean you can only show the 2001 season and the 1995 comeback so many times maybe they could just have it says like let, this is video of mark mclemore playing different positions yeah that's Look. right or uh you know i think they have the infamous uh case of the player trying to blow the ball foul. That happened in Seattle. Okay. Uh, I don't remember exactly who it was. But, that, you know, that's a funny highlight where you can show a guy on hands and knees trying to blow a ball into foul territory. Maybe they can just make an entire program out of that. Well, you know, it's interesting. You know, ESPN has the 30 for 30 series. Right. Uh, you know, maybe uh, um, <clears throat> maybe what the Mariners could do is they could do like a 4 for 30 series, um, <laughs> which would which would not only be uh, four of course, being the number of videos they could really produce about the team, but it would also be uh, their typical batting line on any given night. Right. Yeah, yeah. that is uh, quite, quite a clever little jab. Yeah, that's what just happened. All right, let's talk about uh, people who are competent at baseball, and uh, we'll stop talking about the Mariners for the moment. Uh, let's move to an article you actually posted as I was walking on my way home from the cafe uh, to my house uh, to the uh, the home production studio of Fangraphs Audio. Uh, you, you seem to have uh, written something here uh, about uh, Brandon Phillips, and, you, and um, it has a, uh, includes a word, or an acronym, I should say, that is less frequently encountered in the electronic pages of Fangraphs, and that's RBI. Uh, your post is called Anatomy of Brandon Phillips' RBI Machine. Uh, you know, 
I would say I'd say that orthodox uh, or that sabermetric orthodoxy suggests that um, RBIs, a, a batter's ability to produce um, to produce runs, is really just a function of his batting talent uh, relative to opportunities. It, it seems as though I would guess what you're suggesting here is that maybe that's not the case for Brandon Phillips, or is that the case? Someone hasn't read the article. No, no, I absolutely admit that I've not read the article. No, I, yeah. I called you as soon as I got home. Yes. Yeah, so let's... Uh, no, right, yeah. So I posted this article later than usual, so you have not had sufficient time to prepare. Yeah. Uh, so the, the title is slightly misleading. Essentially, I am uh, fulfilling the Van Graaff's duty of puncturing holes in, our, in the RBI statistic. Uh, so we, basically, I, t- I took Brandon Phillips as an example of uh, how he has a very high RBI total and how that's almost entirely due to due to the opportunities he's been presented by uh, Shin Chu and Joey Votto, who currently rank number one and number two in Major League Baseball and on base percentage, uh, and kind of went through the numbers that are broken down uh, uh, helpfully on baseball reference. Uh, Brandon Phillips has come to bat with 78 men on base this year, number one in Major League Baseball, mm-hmm. and he's driven in uh, 23% of those, which is, you know, very good, above the league average, uh, and also ranks 30th, <laughs> tied with Nelson Cruz. So, uh, Brandon Phillips, number two in, in Major League Baseball in RBIs, number 30 once you adjust for opportunities. Great. And is that something – now, uh, so you, I, I, I can see from your article here that 14% is Major League average. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, is it, do we see – do we do we see players? I'm going to guess the answer to this question is yes. Do we see players who are consistently above major league average? And for, for the players that we do see above that, what are the traits that they share? They're good hitters. Okay. <laughs> General, generally going to Thanks. be the correlation. Uh, no, I think actually one of the interesting things, uh, because I pulled the data from Baseball Reference and not from our database, it's a little harder to uh, get it all and uh, have you know like extensive year-over-year correlations. Uh, but I did play around with a few, a little bit of the data this morning, and I'll probably do some more posts on this kind of data. Like I, I do find this idea of situational hitting interesting. And you know, I, as much as I think the RBI is a bad statistic, I don't think the idea of quantifying how effective or efficient hitters are at driving in their teammates is, is a bad thing at all. And it certainly helps your team win if you do that more often. Um, so I, you know, when I was playing around with the data this morning, I, I ran a uh, the correlation of. Uh, Essentially, the efficiency of the percentage of runners that you're, they, a team scores versus just the the number of base runners they have, thinking that you know there would probably be a pretty strong correlation. And if you get guys on base, that means you're getting hits and walks and you're doing things correctly. You probably also drive in a decent amount. You have better hitters. Uh, you'd be more likely to score um, the guys who are on base because you got them on base in the first place. It suggests that you have decent offensive talent to begin with. Uh, the correlation was much lower than I thought. It was actually a uh, 0.27, uh, which translates to an R squared of a 0.07. So you could explain 7% of uh, the efficiency of scoring runners just by knowing how many runners that team got on base. That's, that's quite low, uh, yeah, lower yeah. than I expected. And so I think that, you know, there might be something to uh, base running here that we're not measuring. I and mean, there's a lot of other variables that might be worth taking a look at and saying if we wanted to predict what teams were going to be better at this than others, or what players were going to be better at this than others, uh, what would we need to know? And we certainly need to know more than on base percentage. I mean, you know, I think power is going to come into play, base running is going to come into play, home park is probably going to come into play. Um, but I think it would be interesting to see if we could develop a metric that uh, kind of gave us an idea of what kind of players are actually good run producers relative to their opportunity. Now, as you note, 
uh, one of the things certainly that's helping, um, one of the things that's certainly helping uh, Brandon Phillips drive in runs is that he that he has a lot of runners on. Uh, Jeff Sullivan writes about Shinshu Chu today at the site, um, but. I'm curious in particular because Joey Votto, obviously, he's getting on. I have a couple of questions to ask you about Joey Votto. But I guess the first is Joey Votto is getting on base a lot. Brandon Phillips is driving yeah. in a lot of runners. Is it yeah. is it is it is a um is a player's RBI total? Is it going to uh, matter most who the the guy who's sitting right in front of him, or is it uh, you know to what degree does choose on base percentage help Brandon Phillips? Uh, I guess relative to Votto's on base percentage. Well, I think we definitely see that uh, it's not just the guy in front of you that matters the most. Uh, you know, I think there's a collective effort here. Uh, in the, you know, I think if you look at the National League leaders and inherited base runners, uh, Phillips is number one. I think uh, Todd Frazier is number three. Jay Bruce is like number five. Uh, the Reds are all very high. Votto's like number four. <laughs> like it's basically the, the Reds and Dodgers at the top because Carl Crawford and Adrian Zoll have been very good in L.A. as well. And Matt Kemp and Andre Hitcher have been lousy at getting them in, which is why the Dodgers aren't winning and the Reds are. Uh, but I think what we see is that it's a cumulative effect. So, you know, Brandon Phillips isn't just benefiting from Joey Votto. He's also benefiting heavily from Shinsu, too. Uh, and, you know, perhaps maybe the most interesting part of this entire aspect is uh, between Chu and Votto is Zach Kozart with a 243 on base percentage. So Brandon Phillips leads the majors in base runners, despite the fact that the guy hitting two spots ahead of him is uh, one of the worst on-base guys in the majors to think. Yeah, that, uh, I did notice that. I guess uh, well, I guess that would leave uh, both Votto and Phillips with plenty of RBI opportunities because Cozart's not moving uh, yeah, to right. around. Yeah, exactly. So uh, two is generally still on first base by the time they get up there because that Cozart is likely made now. <laughs> yeah. Um, here's a question. I see. This is a simple question, and I'm sure has been answered before, but um, I don't. I don't think I've ever answered it on the program, and it occurs to me that uh, a person should know it. Um, you always see, of course, during during broadcast, you see, uh, well, here's this batter's uh, line on the season, but here's what he's batting with, uh, you know, with runners on base or something like that. And I think I haven't asked is what uh, what is the difference between a batter's batting line with runners on base or runners in scoring position in terms of league average relative to just the league average batting line. Is it, is that going to be harder? And, uh, and do we know, uh, do we know why batters uh, typically are batting uh, better or worse with runners on as opposed to bases empty? Well, I think what we, our guess is, is you know, we know that headers hit better because uh, with the bases, uh, with a runner on first base because of the defensive alignment. So when a first baseman is holding a runner on, it creates a pretty substantial hole on the right side uh, that allows, you know, left-handed hitters, especially who can pull the ball through that hole, uh, to get a, a higher hit rate on those ground balls, balls that would have been fielded by the first baseman going to right field. Uh, so we think that's probably a, a decent part of it. Uh, pitching from the stretch also seems to be a bit of a, a diminishing, um, I don't know, harm on the pitcher. If you want to say, it seems like pitchers pitch worse out of the stretch than they do from the windup. Uh, you know, there's some suggestion that velocity is down, uh, strikeout rate is down when pitching out of the stretch. So um, that's also a factor is that the, the pitcher is less likely to throw uh, as well. Uh, and then there's a, also a selection bias effective. Um, pitchers who allow base runners are worse than pitchers who don't. And so, you know, when you're looking at the uh, line of a guy who's hitting with men on base, he's more likely to be facing, you know, uh, John Lane and many of us be saving Cliff Lee because Cliff Lee, a much larger percentage of his 
uh, batter's taste come with the base of empty. And so um, I think those three factors probably combine to make up the difference. And, uh, you know, which one's the dominant factor, it probably depends on the hitter and the pitcher and the situation. Um, but it's it's likely some amalgamation of uh, defensive efficiency falling because of uh, holding the runner on first, the stretch, and uh, selection bias. Okay, now uh, I want to I want to get to Votto specifically for a second. Uh, Joey Votto currently has a walk rate of twenty seven point two percent. For reference, Barry Bonds, who's famous for walking, uh, both well, among other things, among other things, right? Uh, only posted three seasons w- with a, a walk rate above that. Um, obviously, uh, we're earlier in the season. Now and so we, you know, we we should probably regress Vada's rate uh, to some degree. However, it's still very high, and so I guess the first question is: uh, we no, we know Vado has a good eye, um, but it also seems like to to achieve a level uh, that high, uh, a walk rate that high, that uh, pitchers would have to be throwing around him as well. And I'm curious, yeah. I'm curious, uh, you know, why? I guess why would that be happening? At this point, seeing as we know Joey Votto didn't hit a home run after returning last season, uh, I think he has two, uh, maybe he just hit right. a third in the season. But that's still yeah. not, you know, Carlos Gonzalez, or, or I should say Dexter, probably Carlos Gonzalez has more too, but Dexter Fowler definitely has more. There are a bunch of guys who are hitting more home runs who have hit more in the last calendar year. What do you think is going on with Votto right now and I guess the pitchers who are facing him? Yeah, I think it's a combination of a couple of things. So it's probably three. Uh, once again, it will be an amalgamation of three things. That okay. should be the name of the podcast. Yes, amalgamation uh, of three Cameron things. Cameron amalgamates three things. Amalgamate, uh, yes. Yeah, uh, I think, so what we're seeing is the reputation, uh, Joey Votto has is, uh, regardless of how many home runs he's hit since he came off the DL last year, still very high. Pitchers are scared of Joey Votto for good reason. Joey Votto is a very good hitter. If they throw balls in the middle of the plate, Joey Votto will hit home runs. Uh, so he, he might not be driving the ball as much as he has previously right now, but pitchers are not uh, tailoring their approach to pitching to him based on his first couple weeks of the season. They still see Joey Votto come to the plate and say, oh, crap. So he's going to see a lot of pitches out of the strike zone just because he's Joey Votto and he scares them. Uh, he also doesn't swing at pitches out of the strike zone. Votto is perhaps the maybe one of the smartest hitters in Major League Baseball, in that he understands that he can help his team by taking first base. A lot of these guys, uh, you know, they don't like walks. They don't, they see walks as boring, and, you know, their job is to produce runs and swing the bat. And, uh, you know, Joey Votto's manager wants him to swing the bat more often and drive in more runs and take less walks. And uh, So I think that there's a mentality uh, that's kind of negative uh, around the walk that Votto does not have, so he's more willing to take pitches. Um and then I think, uh, you know, the loss of Ryan Ludwig is probably playing into this a little bit as well. I mean, Brandon Phillips is a, um, you know, a decent hitter. Uh, nothing wrong with Brandon Phillips, but he's not, you know, a pitcher that, uh, the type of hitter that a pitcher is going to be overly scared of. Um, so while, you know, the protection theory is essentially a myth in that, uh, you know, hitters don't do better with, with a, you know, a better hitter behind them, uh, pitchers do pitch differently based on who's coming up. Uh, and, you know, are probably more likely to, uh, walk Amato and face Phillips than they would have been if it was Ludwig and then Phillips or Ludwig and then Todd Frazier or whoever it was, guys who could hit the ball over the wall a little bit more often than the Red Second Mason. So here's a, th- here's a question. Uh, I think it's the case with attendances that there is a sort of lag. Uh, there's a lag in response to a team's uh, a team winning. 
where so a team might start winning, but then you you only see attendance increases a little bit later than that. I could be lying; it doesn't matter really because it's, I'm comparing it. I'm making an analogy. Is there a, is there in a sense is there a lag um, with how pitchers uh, begin to react to a hitter? Like you said, Joey Joey Votto still has his reputation as an excellent hitter as a as a as a power hitter, uh, despite the fact that you know uh, he he has not necessarily been hitting a lot of home runs over the past year. Is, is there sort of uh, do we do we sense a lag in the way that pitchers change their approaches uh, to different hitters? Yeah, that's a good question. I think uh, it's probably something that you could ask, you know, uh, a pitcher the next time they come to Milwaukee and talk to them about how they compile their approach against a hitter and whether they're using older scouting reports or whether the technology advances and allow them to use, you know, strictly this year's video. Uh, you know, I think. From what I understand in talking to some players, a lot of pitchers uh, care very deeply about how a guy has done against them in the past. Not necessarily so much how they did against other people recently, but it's a, a personal, what did I do last time to get this guy out? And they watch a lot of video of uh, themselves versus that lineup that they're facing or the guys who are going to be in that lineup. Uh, you know, for most pitchers who have faced Joey Votto this year, they probably haven't faced Joey Votto too many times before this season. You know, a lot of teams are playing the Reds for the first time this year. So the only video they're going to have uh, to research is, you know, last year or the year before, you know, previous histories, uh, going back some days when Joey Votto's knee was 100% healthy. And, you know, it might be 100% healthy right now. We don't, you know, I don't want to speculate about Votto's health necessarily. But, um, you know, I think they're going to look back at video of Votto crushing the ball when he, uh, when they threw it down the middle and, and adjust accordingly. Um, you know, so maybe in the future we will see a little bit of a change in approaches. Pitchers incorporate video from early in the season when uh, Votto was a little more passive and willing to take pitches on the corners. You know, I, I, that's an interesting point you bring up about how a pitcher will uh, look back maybe or a pitcher, you know, along with a coach, will look back at how that pitcher has done against a specific batter. Um, it's interesting yeah. you mentioned that. It reminds me of something um, – this yeah, you know, this morning I posted audio of a conversation I had with Jim Deshays. Jim Deshays, uh, current uh, Cubs uh, color broadcaster, was with the Astros for some time. Um, is uh, pretty sharp all the way around. Uh, has a good analytical mind. Was also a pitcher for 12 years. He he's he suggested something, and I don't know. Uh, it sounds like it would be very difficult to be able to check, but he said one thing that he believes he sensed. Um, in uh, in baseball since the time he left or, you know, relative to, to the time when he was active, is that where potentially teams used to attack uh, hitters' weaknesses or they would pitchers would game plan for hitters' weaknesses, what he senses now is that it's more popular for pitchers to, to stay at their strengths and to play to the top of their strengths as opposed to, uh, you know, trying to scout a player's or a hitter's weakness and play to that. I, I th- again, this is a this was speculative on him. I don't want to I don't want to attribute this entire idea. He said he has a sense that that's happening. I'm curious. Uh, it seems to to connect a little bit with what you're saying here, though. A pitcher scouting against a hitter directly. Have, have you sensed that maybe the the way that uh, pitchers uh, approach hitters, maybe playing more to their own strengths, the pitcher's strengths, rather than the hitter's weaknesses? Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, I think it's an interesting thing. I, I mean, you know, there's ways we could try and uh, use numbers as proxies to try and get at it. Measuring intent is very hard. So this is the kind of thing that we would really have to dance around and we would probably never be able to prove. I do think, like, if we wanted to look at this, maybe one of the things that would show up if that theory was true is that 
we would see hitters who chase pitches out of the zone with high frequency uh, would maybe get um, pitched to a little bit more normally than uh, they had in the past. So, you know, Pablo Sandoval or Josh Hamilton or, you know, Delman Young, one of these guys who's notorious for swinging at anything. Uh, if pitchers were pitching to their strength and not to the hitter's weakness, they would be more likely to throw those guys' strengths. Because oh, right. even though those guys are known free swingers, if the hitter, if the pitcher says, you know, my best pitch is, you know, down and away, this is where I really locate my slider well, it doesn't matter that, you know, Pablo Sandoval is going to chase a pitch six feet off the plate. They won't pitch to that zone as much. And so I think we might see this in a contraction of uh, kind of zone percentage or pitches in the strike zone to free swingers. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I, to be honest, I don't know if we see that or not. I haven't looked. I, my sense is that we don't. I think people are still throwing Josh Hamilton and Pablo Sandoval and Delman Young a lot of pitches out of the strike zone. Mm-hmm. And I think that might be a little bit of a counter to Deshaies' argument is, you know, if you have guys with this kind of, uh, extreme approach, and you are pitching to your strength. I think you're you're kind of being foolish if you're pounding the zone against these guys. That's that's your fault. Yeah, well, I guess it's also a question of uh, of maybe uh, you still do it with certain batters, like because you the the batters you mentioned, of course, are all very good, um, despite the fact that they swing well. Uh, did you say Delman? I, I mentioned Delman. Yeah, okay, all right, multiple all right. times. Yeah. <laughs> Sandoval, Sandoval, and Hamilton are are rather good, um, uh, despite the fact, yeah, that you, they have shown. An, Predilection to swinging outside the zone. Uh, it, it would be it would be interesting to test. And, and I, yeah, but I I think that the, the method you're suggesting would be one way to, to suss it out. Although of course, uh, right, difficult uh, difficult to do overall, especially yeah. going back to the 80s, where who knows right. what they did? Who, who knows what anyone right. did in the 80s? It's a it's a it's a lost decade. The war of a lot of flannel, I believe. Oh, no, flannel was the 90s. I don't, I don't know. I was. You were too. Yeah. I don't know what was the eighties. Baby boomers. Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan. Cocaine. Uh, cocaine was big in the eighties. Ah, Daryl Strawberry. Yes, I guess. Well, he, not just Daryl Strawberry, but like business. <laughs> he did man. all the cocaine. <laughs> he did. Yeah, he did. Yeah, no, I think I think other people were into it as well. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I think those those two things. I think making money. That the movie Wall Street came out. Uh, right. That's this, still kind of a thing. I think people. Uh, yeah, I like people. Money. Yes, people love making money. I think there was a. There, there was a. I think it was particularly stark at that point because it was the. Uh, this is a painting with the broadest possible brush, but it was a, a lot of people who had come of age uh, in the '60s had uh, moved on, and their their uh, value systems had changed pretty, uh, pretty strongly from this sort of peace and love uh, era of the '60s and early '70s to uh, sort of. Uh, Cruel capitalistic sense in the 80s. Uh, it was a stark, uh, stark right. shift, and it was all the 1970s. These things also couldn't be related, right? Because cocaine is very expensive. Uh, I think you, oh, compared to other drugs, yes, I think it is more expensive. Well, yes. yeah. I mean, I don't know the, the drug scale of cost plus on cocaine versus other things, but I mean, just in general, I think cocaine is not cheap. So perhaps all this cocaine usage was was you know required funding. It required funding, or maybe uh, it was the other way around. Is that uh, people? Uh, were more upwardly mobile and needed a drug uh, to fit their lifestyle. I think I think the data generally shows that the uh, drug usage uh, and and wealth are negatively correlated. Correct. Uh, I guess generally speaking, right. But oh, that's an interesting that's an interesting point. But maybe the people who do use drugs would use a different sort of drug. And is that still well? This is interesting. I guess. Uh, but we we're really. Firing on zero cylinders in terms we, of we have we have totally <laughs> lost baseball at this point. Yeah, let's uh, let's bring it back uh, 
not connected whatsoever, but um, let's let's bring it back to to one other piece. You will we'll treat it briefly, and then you then you can go. Um, and that was uh, I guess what middle of last week, towards the end of last week, you wrote a piece on CC Sabathia, 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 yeah. Sabathia, uh, and it has to do with a show. Uh, a show that's now on MLB Network in which um, Brian Kenny and Harold Reynolds yell at each other. Yeah. Um, well, I think Harold Reynolds does most of the yelling. Okay. What is Brian Kenny like? Leads the league in eye rolling. Okay, and maybe stewing. Maybe does he do more like internal yeah. stewing? Brian Kenny uh, should just be like renamed passive aggressive man. In response <laughs> to so, so he, so it's basically the two of them sit and Harold Reynolds. Has I think I think the show is a little bit silly, right? In that it, yeah. um, it it really overdoes pr- probably the divide between that exists um, between st- but, like was certainly internally in organizations between stats guys and scouts guys or traditional guys, yeah. whatever. It probably overdoes right. that relationship. But these two guys certainly uh, seem to annoy each other. And uh, <laughs> one of the things about which they were talking was uh, Sabathia's ability to pitch to the score. And that's a testable assertion, right? And you tested it. Yes. And right. We, we and Harold Reynolds was wrong. Harold Reynolds is wrong. <laughs> yeah. And how do, how do you go about doing something like that, where, where Harold Reynolds says you could pitch the score? What, how do you go about uh, testing that assertion? Yeah, I mean, I think the key thing here, and, you know, there was some argument in the comment section about this, is that the idea of pitching to the score is actually correct. Uh, there is a significant amount of evidence that pitchers do change the way they pitch uh, based on the score, and it makes sense. If you are up by, you know, 10 runs, there's no real reason to nibble on the corners and, you know, try and uh, make sure you throw the perfect pitch. You just kind of throw it down the middle and, you know, try and get the game over as quickly as possible. There's no question that in blowouts, uh, pitchers throw more strikes, uh, and, you know, we see walks go down, uh, hits go up a little bit because, of some, you know, the strike contact rate goes up. Um, so there's a, a pitchers do pitch differently based on the score. So we're not trying to rebuke the idea of pitching to the score. Essentially what we're rebuking is the the argument that guys like Reynolds are making, uh, you know, especially on behalf of, you know, Jack Morris every year when the Hall of Fame discussion comes up, is that a pitcher's overall performance uh, – especially as it relates to like the number of runs he allows or hits he gives up or whatever, is skewed because that pitcher is intentionally uh, pitching worse with uh, blowouts because he knows he has a cushion. And, you know, when the game's on the line, he pitches better than his overall numbers suggest. So you can't look at things like, you know, ERA or runs allowed or whatever it is because the, those numbers are skewed uh, because these workhorses really knew how to bear down when the game was on the line. That's the testable thing that we can show is just demonstrably wrong. And CC uh, Sabathia does not pitch worse uh, with the the you know game being out of hand uh, than he does when the game is on the line. He pitches differently. He you know he walks fewer guys, he strikes out fewer guys, he gives him more hits. Uh, but he doesn't pitch worse. Like it's a trade-off. If CC Sabathia decided, hey, I'm up six to three, I'm just going to start letting base runners on. All of a sudden, it's six to five, and they have to go get Mariano Rivera. That's not helpful to his team at all. Like, uh, yeah, and I think you know, Kenny did a really nice job of um, asking Reynolds this in the video of like, you know, why would a pitcher ever choose to pitch in a way that caused him to give up hits and runs? They they, they wouldn't. Even with a, a, a large lead, a starting pitcher's out there to try and save the bullpen and you know get through it as quickly as possible, throw as few pitches as possible so he can pitch deep into the game. Uh, you know, if you're giving up a bunch of runs, you're throwing a lot of pitches, you're going to get yourself out of the game and you're going to make the bullpen work. So at no point is it 
uh, helpful to your team to start giving up runs. It doesn't matter what the score is. Yes, what maybe we see with Reynolds, though, is it possible that even if there's no demonstrable effect on the field in terms of you know, Sabathia or anyone uh, pitching better or uh, pitching to the score, is it is it possible that it could at least represent the narrative, a, a narrative that a player has for himself? Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's no question that Sabathia probably remembers giving up home runs and meaningless games, and he didn't care at all that the ball went over the yard. I mean, his emotional response was probably like, eh, that didn't matter. So then someone tells him at the end of the year, hey, man, you gave up 23 home runs. He might be like, yeah, well, five of those I didn't I didn't care about. And, you know, like I had no bad feeling about giving them up. So I really only gave up 18 home runs, and he could tell himself that his numbers were better uh, because of the fact that he, he pitched – uh, in such a way that those home runs didn't matter. Uh, I think the problem is we don't really see this as a, a separation between players. We don't see that CeCe Sabathia really pitches differently in certain situations any more so than any other player does. So comparing their overall numbers is still fair. Yeah, okay. That's good. That's good. That's interesting. Uh, listen, uh, I'm going to uh, appeal to you as an editor. Uh, is, um, I, w- I was working um, – today I was working a little bit on the Fringe 5 Article for tomorrow. I think for t- yeah, tomorrow. Uh, any, anything I should change about that? Uh, do I have anything to say about it? Yeah, I mean, is there anything I should change, or should I just keep doing that? You should post it earlier. I think you put it up at like 10 p.m. last week. I did, yes. I did put it up at 10 p.m. I had an opportunity to spend a little time with my wife, uh, which is rare because she's in uh, uh, graduate school, and it's uh, it's not fun. So I, you know what I did? I took that opportunity, Cameron. I, 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 right. figured, I thought to myself – Cameron would support that decision. I, I would, but you could have held it for, like, Wednesday morning. That would have been okay. Well, there's that, too. There's that angle. Yeah, yeah well, we'll I would see. say post it, post it during an hour when people are still reading Fangraph. Oh, right. Yes. Yes. That's a good point. That's a good point. Maybe I'll aim a little earlier tomorrow is what, is what we're saying. Yeah. A little bit earlier. A little earlier. Yeah, not a terrible idea. So, like, before prime time, for example. Before dinner, how about Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'll aim before dinner. Okay. Or before breakfast on Wednesday. Either one's fine. Yeah. Well, nighttime on Tuesday is still before breakfast on Wednesday. That's true. Yeah. True. So there you go. Yeah. There you go. Uh, okay. You've uh, you've uh, you're, you're satisfied. You've done you've done what you do. We're gonna do something with amalgamating. Yes, I've amalgamated. It's I've a, done it's amalgamating. A, the problem is it's a really long word, and I only have uh, like uh, nine letters. Fine, finite number of characters with which to work, though, in the title. Plus, I also right, I have to include Fangraphs Audio in the in the title. We'll see. Yeah, I, I think you can, I can you can do it. Okay. I have faith in you for this this thing only. This thing only. Yes, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> that has uh, uh, that has been uh, Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs. Carson Stooley, uh, and what you've heard, what you've listened to just now, it's been Fangraphs Audio.